0: The story of Christmas is such a familiar one that it might strike you as a bit odd that we are speaking of it during this month in terms of mystery. You know the details so well. You have sung the songs, you've read the scripture texts. What in the world about Christmas is really a mystery? Well, I would go so far as to say that until we unravel some of the more confounding elements of the Christmas story, we don't really fully get all that God is, all that God has done, all that the Lord wants to do in and through our lives in this season and in the year to come. And so to help with trying to understand that more deeply, we're going to do some sleuthing, a little detective work. We're going to take a magnifying glass, as it were, to the story of Christmas, and in fact, we're going to do it by looking throughout this month at one of the most neglected, but most important of all of the tellings of the Christmas story. And by that I mean, I'm speaking of the gospel according to John chapter one. We're so familiar with Matthew's telling and Luke's telling of this marvelous story that I want to take you uh, to John's Gospel, and I'm going to read today just from a few verses from this text, and we'll be unpacking more of this passage in the days to come. I'm beginning today at John chapter 1 at verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. The light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the one, I am the voice of one, calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know, and he is the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. One of the great mysteries of the Christmas story is why God chose to shine his light and accomplish his purposes through the particular people that he did. I don't know if you ever really thought about that, but I want to invite you to think about that with me this morning. When God decides that he is going to incarnate himself, he's going to put himself into human flesh and launch the next stage, the decisive stage of his redemptive plan for this earth, he certainly has a whole lot of options in how he could have done that. He could have chosen to arrive, of course, with great fanfare on the lawn of the White House or the Palace of Versailles. Uh, He could have been born at the Four Seasons Hotel or in the Palace of Caesar. God could have elected to fill the womb of Ariana Grande. He could have filled the, the, the body of Queen Elizabeth or Melinda Gates or Cleopatra. God had so many choices that he could have made when this was all beginning. And we know the choices that rich, powerful, famous, full of capacity people typically make when they are given options. We know what they do when they're choosing their modes of travel or their places of residence or their entourages. And by that measure, you would think that the master of the universe, the the greatest royalty of all, the one who is accustomed to being in the presence of throngs of fabulously, spectacularly beautiful angels who all day long, for all of eternity, worship and adore him, the one who is accustomed to the splendors of the heavenly realms all of the time, you would think that when he came, to become a human being that, in some way, he would make a choice that would enhance his comfort, that would reflect his matchless glory and his grandeur. So what did God choose? What did he actually choose? Well, God says, I choose to be born of a peasant teenager. I choose to be born to a young woman under the care of a blue-collar fiance at a place and time when they are far away from home. I will enter the world in a nondescript town in a minor province in the armpit of the ancient world. And I'll grow up in Uh, an environment that will be surprising to many who might expect differently. My very first visitors will be a group of shepherds, people who occupy the various lowest rung on the economic ladder of the society of that age. I will uh, grow in a town that people are embarrassed to admit they even come from. Can anything good ever come out of Nazareth, people will say. Eventually, my public campaign will be inaugurated with me standing waist-deep in a muddy river, being baptized by a hair-shirted, locust-eating cousin of mine that looks like a hillbilly. I'll spend the bulk of the next three years walking hot, dusty roads to visit struggling little towns that nobody wants to go to, that people are trying to escape from, in many cases. I will make some memorable speeches, I'll tell some enduring stories, but I'm going to be very careful to communicate those things in terms that even someone without a formal education can understand. Along the way, I'll befriend lepers and prostitutes and paralytics and blind men and bartenders and tax collectors and a whole group of guys who stink of fish. I'll mainly hang out with them. And some very bright, some very well-to-do people will open their hearts and their homes to me and they will become part of my community. But most of the affluent, powerful, popular people who meet me along the way will dismiss me, they will diss me, they will try to destroy me and it will look for a season as if they are right, as if they have won. And I will die on a cross the lowest form of execution possible. I will die on a cross to pay for the sins of the very people who put me there. And my bloodied remains will be buried in a borrowed grave, because I wouldn't be able to afford my own. And three days later, I will depart an empty tomb as mysteriously as I entered a virgin womb. and. Still, most of the people who welcome me and worship me then will be poor. Poor in body, poor in wealth, poor in spirit. And yet, through such people as these, I will unleash a movement like the world has never seen. I will unleash a movement with a new kind of kingdom that will outlast every nation, every empire, every leader, every form of civilization on this earth. And one day I will return as suddenly as I came the first time. And I will bring an end to the great struggle between good and evil in this world. And I will raise to new life and I will take unto myself all those who know of their need of a Savior and who dare to put their trust in me. And on a renewed and a flourishing earth, they will live with me and reign with me forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. This is what I choose, says God. The mystery that I want to invite you to puzzle through with me today is why would God make such unlikely choices and more specifically what I really wanna zero in on with you today is why God would have chose to come first to and shine his light through the poor. Why that particular choice? Why would God enter the world through the lives of Mary and Joseph nobody instead of an influential couple like Uh, Julia and Augustus Caesar, an available option to him at that moment. Why would he spend his entire life in the backwoods of an insignificant country like Israel instead of in Rome, in the center of commerce and power? Why does God in Christ invest himself so much in all of these poor people that we read about in the Gospels on the margins of society who have so little apparent capacity to make his campaign successful? It's a mystery, isn't it? Why he does this? Well, way back in the fourth century AD, and before he was martyred for his faith, a church leader by the name of Theodotus of Ancyra offered an interesting theory about this. This was his explanation of the mystery. If Christ had been born to high rank, writes Theodotus, if he had been born amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said that the world had been transformed by his wealth. If he had chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, they would have thought that the transformation had been brought about by civil power. Suppose he had been the son of an emperor, writes Theodotus, they would have said, oh, how useful it is to be well-connected. Imagine him the son of a senator. It would have been, look what can be accomplished by legislation, but in fact, what did the eternal Son of God do? He surrounded, he chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed so that people would know that it was the Godhead alone that had changed the world. That the only explanation For the radical transformations and the unfolding wave of influence that went out, the only possible explanation was that God was in this, at the center of this, doing this. And this was his reason, writes Theodotus, for choosing his mother from among the poor of a very poor country and for becoming poor himself. God wanted to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt to be remembered throughout all of history that the power we need to change human character and to transform this world into the kind of world we want it to be lies with him alone. In Christ alone, when do you suppose we'll reawaken to that reality in our society today? Or here's a second possible solution here's here's another way of unraveling the mystery of why God comes especially to and through the poor. What if the power of God simply finds a home and flows more freely through those kinds of people? Think about Jesus' hillbilly cousin, John, for a moment. Go back to that story. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, and as far as I'm, I'm, I'm aware, that's everybody, right? Right? among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. And that is a puzzle in itself if you think about it. You wonder what about this John is so great? He's so poor that he eats uh, locusts we're told. He's so poor that he wears a a shirt made of hair. clearly lacks the ambition that makes somebody a player in any kind of world that you and I would recognize. For in the scripture we read earlier when he's interviewed by the Jewish leaders and he's asked, who are you? Do you see yourself as a potential Messiah of society? They're interested in in, in maybe if John could be the long-awaited Messiah, or are you maybe a famous leader like Elijah? Maybe you're somebody that can can influence our whole political sphere like Elijah did, or do you See yourself as maybe being the prophet that the prophets before prophesied would come to pave the way for the Messiah, the coming Savior. What do you say about yourself, John? But each time, John just bows his head and he answered, no. That's not me. That's not what I'm about. And here, I think, is where the mystery begins to resolve. Because you see, John actually is the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. At the moment he is being questioned, John has amassed the largest crowd of followers of any religious leader in 700 years. Think of this. Think of that stretch. I mean, you know how old the United States is. 700 years. He is the greatest leader that has ever arisen to guide a spiritual moment and movement in 700 years. Not since the prophet Isaiah has there walked on the earth such a spiritual giant as John the Baptist, and John could so easily have looked at this huge crowd around him and thought of his own efforts and his own achievements and, and his own various virtues as like a glistening string of pearls that he had managed to put together. He could so easily have become enamored with himself in this way, in these pearls of accomplishment and following that shone with their own kind of glory. Many accomplished people lived their lives in that way. The string of pearls they feel they've put together on their own. And it reflects their glory. But John is less like a string of pearls than like a fiber optic cable. John knows that he himself was not the light. John was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. There is only one being he knows who is truly worthy of glory and honor and power and I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. The greatest spiritual giant in 700 years wouldn't think to even try and touch the toenails of Jesus. And he will later say of Christ, he must become greater and I must become less. How do you think of yourself? That's a question that should be asked From this place of worship all the way to the quarters of Washington, of everyone, how do we think of ourselves? And what do we say about ourselves? Are our lives like a string of pearls that we've made and threaded for ourselves? Or do we think of ourselves more like a fiber optic cable filled with a glory that we did not manufacture? and whose light it is our privilege just to be able to pass on. Because of their profound sense of dependence upon a grace from beyond themselves, the poor more frequently think in fiber optic cable terms about their lives. And if you are such a poor person or you have been in relationship with people are poor, then you know this. They in no way are focused on their own glory. And I think maybe this unravels more of the mystery of why when the light of the world came to shine in the darkness, He came first to and through them. Because God knew that they would recognize their need of His grace and having gratefully received that grace they would be most likely to pass the light on and he had an intention of seeing that light go very far more than 700 years thousands of years And and this has proven so true over the course of history. Here in the United States and in Europe, the most affluent nations on earth, the light of Christ seems in at least many places to be growing dimmer and dimmer, while in poorer nations all across the globe today, the Church of Jesus Christ is exploding with growth and now sending missionaries, thankfully, to our shores to bring the light back. At the end of the day, of course, more of us actually are poor than may be immediately obvious to the human eye. As Mark Buchanan suggests in his wonderful book, Things Unseen, so many of us, even those of us who are materially affluent, live with a strange sense of poverty, really. We're always looking for the next job, for the next adventure, for the next item on our luxury or our novelty checklist. This next thing mentality becomes so obsessive that we lose the capacity to enjoy and be thankful for what we have right now. And nowhere is this more evident than at Christmas time, writes Buchanan. I saw this close up when my children first got to that age when the essence of Christmas becomes the day of getting. December 25th, the great day of getting. And there were mounds of gifts beneath our tree, he writes, and our son led the way in that favorite childhood and, I would add more subtly, adult pastime how many are for me? How many did they get? But the telling moment came Christmas morning when the gifts were handed out, and the children looked at each other briefly and at the gifts briefly, and their interest quickly faded, and then they put it aside to move on to the very next thing, and when the ransacking was all finished, my son was standing amidst the tumultuous sea of boxes and brightly crumpled paper and exotic wrappings, and he asked plainfully to the heir, is this all there is? Mom and Dad, is this this all there is? Buchanan suggests that maybe the problem of our affluent times is not that we are taught to value things too much, but to value them too little. We forget to treasure and to savor the pressure of constant wanting, the constant upgrading, This dissipates our gratitude, and the weight of restless craving plunders our enjoyment. But then he adds this surprising twist that I love and that leads us into a deeper mystery. Buchanan wonders, what if God made us this way? What if he made us to always be hungry for something that we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill. Yearning, he writes, itself is healthy. It's a kind of compass, this yearning, this compass inside of us that's pointing us towards a true north. It's not the wanting that corrupts us. What corrupts us is the wanting that is misplaced, that that is set on the wrong thing. And so I want to ask, as you and your loved ones and as my family moves into the Christmas season ahead, what is our heart set on? What is the object of our desire? How do we want to set our hearts? And let me just offer a couple of ideas as we go. First, at the top of your Christmas list, put a prayer request instead of a a thing request. Put a prayer request, this one. Pray that God would do something in you that can't be explained in any other way except by his movement. In other words, the only way it could really be explained is if he was filling you and doing it in you. Ask God for that. Ask him to give you the power to forgive somebody you can't imagine forgiving on your own. Ask God to give you the capacity to let go of a vice you've never been able to let go of or establish a new healthy pattern you've never been able to really ingrain by yourself. Ask him to do that in you. Pray that he'll grow in you a fruit of his spirit that is uh, very perishable in you right now, a a greater quality of love or peace or patience or kindness or gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, humility, courage, a passion for justice, ask him to grow something in you you've not been able to grow by your own efforts. The story of Christmas is that God loves to supply transforming power to people who know they're spiritually poor. And there's no reason to think that he loved Joseph and Mary more than he loves you. And me. So let's open our lives to him this season. Secondly, make the decision today that you're gonna stop doing so much pearl stringing and start thinking more and more of yourself as a fiber optic line. Be like Jesus's cousin John. Reject the thinking that your task in this world is to display all of your pearly achievements to draw the attention to yourself. I'm there, I mean, I I live with this struggle every day of my life, this temptation to be stringing yet another pearl and saying, has anybody noticed how beautiful this is? Reject that impulse. Think more about how you can be a clear channel for God's light to move through you towards other people, especially towards the poor. They have not stopped needing His grace. And a lot of what God has given us, this amazing privilege God has given us is to be the conduits through which that grace comes into their lives this season to help them flourish. So let Jesus become greater in us and through us and let's personally become less. Finally, confess that you are poor too. Because I promise you, if we stood in his full presence, if we could see him as he is, we would know just how poor we are. And move, let's move together towards the only one who can make us truly rich in the way that lasts. We are all in this together, every one of us on this earth. Most every one of us, I'd say all of us, everyone born of woman is trying to satisfy a hunger that can find its only satisfaction fully in Jesus Christ. So ask Jesus, if you've never done this before, ask him to come into you, to be your savior, to be the Lord of your life. Ask him to come in. And and if you need help beyond that, and most of us do, request the help of someone else to guide you on the pathway forward. Request the help of one of our staff to connect you to resources that can better feed your spiritual life during uh, the week or to help you find partners that can share the spiritual journey with you or a place to use your gifts and service. Ask for that help. Do what poor people are unafraid to do. And simply ask for help. For Saint Augustine was right. Our hearts, O God, are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have a particular heart for the poor because in one way or another, all of us are. Fill us up in this season, Lord. Overflow from our life. Shine your light through the lifeline that each of us has. That you might be glorified, God, and that others might find greater blessing in this Christmas season through each of us. For this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.